PA Books is a production of PCN, a nonprofit television network. Listeners like you make our programming possible. To learn more about PCN's mission and to support PCN with a donation, visit PCNTV.com. This link and others can be found in our show notes. We appreciate your support. Welcome to the PA Books Podcast. I'm Phil Beckman. PA Books features interviews with authors of books about Pennsylvania history, culture, and people. In this episode, we talk about the murders of two police officers in Kennett Square, Pennsylvania in 1972. Our guest is Bruce Mowdy, and his book is Small Town Cops in the Crosshairs. This week on PA Books, Bruce Mowdy, author of Small Town Cops in the Crosshairs. Bruce Mowdy is the author of Small Town Cops in the Crosshairs. Now, your book is about the, the murder of two police officers in Kennett Square. When did you first hear about this murder? Actually, Phil, first, thank you very much for having me on the show uh, to talk about this book. I actually learned about this murder when I was a reporter for the Daily Local News in Westchester, and I had really just started working covering the courthouse and, and the crime beat and the legal beat. And one of my first assignments was to go to Harrisburg to cover a uh, post-conviction hearing uh, on this case. And it was uh, just a couple of years after the murders in Kennett Square took place. So uh, I became very familiar with the case right away in uh, about 1974. I can't believe it's been that long. What was it that inspired you to write this book? Well. Actually, um, I, I was finishing up my book on the book I did on Lafayette at Brandywine, and I received a call from Schiffer Publishing in Eklund, and they basically asked me, have I ever thought about doing a book on this case? And I said, yes, and uh, are you going to offer me a contract, which I did. And it was a logical choice for them to contact me because I spent three years of my life covering uh, the Johnston gang and Bruce Johnston Sr. was convicted of six counts of murder and his two brothers four more counts of murder and they had this crime gang that terrorized southern Chester County and more than that uh, up and down the east, eastern seaboard and one of their gang members was a guy named Ansel Ham. He was their safe person and he uh, would blow up safes if, if the Johnsons needed to get into them, and he was the only person charged and convicted in these two murders. Uh, but what Bruce Johnson Sr.'s brother-in-law told me and other police had told me, and the, the great belief that Bruce Johnson Sr., the le leader of this gang, was actually the getaway driver that night, and his, one of his brothers, David Johnson, was next to it. Ansel Ham, when the two police officers were gunned down about 2 o'clock in the morning on November the 15th, 1972, outside the, the Kennett Square Police Station. Well, let's, let's go a little bit deeper into that. T okay. Take us back to that night and uh, what happened during the shooting. Yeah, um, it was uh, you know, November. It was kind of cold. It was a little bit rainy. Uh, a little bit later in the morning, they had snow. Uh, Kennett Square is a very, it's a small community, it's thriving, it's known to be the mushroom capital of the world. There's a big mushroom festival every September there. But at that point, you know, it was just 
a typical small town uh, Pennsylvania, not some crime, not major crime, certainly no murders like was going to happen. And uh, the two police officers, uh, William Davis and Richard Posey, were on duty that night and they had started the midnight shift. Um, there was a traffic accident. They went out, they investigated, they, they had some evidence from the, the hit and run, and they came back to the police station. Again, it was about two o'clock in the morning, and um, William Davis got out of the car. Immediately a shot was fired. The shot came from across the street by a sniper, a Belgian-made rifle, uh, just one shot, and Davis went down. Posey got out of the car trying to help his, his you know, fellow officer and wasn't sure where the shot had come from. And uh, as he went to, to Davis's aid, another shot fired. And uh, Posey was shot once and killed. Obviously, a marksman that knew what he was doing was hiding in the vicinity. That set off a really a, a dramatic um, response by police. This was actually a time before, of course, cell phones or, or a lot of the police officers didn't have uh, great communications. It was a midnight shift. Um, actually, there was only a few police departments outside of Pennsylvania State Police on patrol down there. Uh, right before that, the Chester County District Attorney's Office and Emergency Services instituted a program where they would call the police officers on duty each night every hour just to make sure they were okay. And of course, the uh, two o'clock call to the two Kenneth Square officers went unanswered. They tried it several more times, no answers. So they uh, alerted the state police and luckily a car was in the vicinity and rushed with the lights going and sirens to the police station. And that's when the two police officers were found dead. Uh, you can imagine the, the police officers, and I interviewed one of them for the book, um, what they felt when they got there. They had no idea if the sniper was still there. Were they going to be coming under attack? Uh, J.R. Campbell grabbed his shotgun, and uh, anybody came anywhere close, they were put under close surveillance with that, that shotgun. And the uh, within minutes, um, more state police, the emergency services, the ambulance got there. One of the first responders was a um, state policeman named Charles Zagorski. And uh, Zagorski headed up the uh, investigation. But when he was on his way and he lived fairly close to Kenneth Square, he was convinced one of the dead officers was his brother, Frank Zagorski because Frank was William Davis's partner, and there was a switch in shifts, and, and um, Posey switched with Frank Zagorski. Um, and it was Posey, the father of four children, that was murdered that night. But when Charlie Zagorski rushed to that scene, he was sure his brother was dead. Uh, the young district attorney who was just uh, elected a few months before, William Lamb, who later became a Pennsylvania Supreme Court justice rushed to the scene and the major investigation started uh, for the first three or four days. A lot of the police officers and, and Lamb also didn't even go home. They slept on the floor of the small Kennett Square police station. So you know, immediately you, you had the great police response. Um, you know, the town was put on edge. 
Let's talk a little bit more about the two men who were shot. Uh, right. William Davis, who was he? William Davis, uh, the Davis family, well known in the Kenneth Square area. His uh, father worked in law enforcement. Uh, one of his brothers did. Uh, he had another brother who was well known in, in the school community, a coach, sports world. And was known around town as somebody that you, you could help. And he had a great um, belief that Kenneth Square should be safe from criminals. And he was very proud of, of Kenneth Square. And uh, people would come to him with little problems. And he, he was the type of police officer you really want in the community. Posey was um, actually... Uh, was a delivery person. He, they were both Posey and Davis involved in the local fire department, um, and uh, Posey was not talked into, but he was encouraged to join the the police department. And Davis was one one of the persons who encouraged him, and um, he wanted to serve his community. Uh, again, somebody you'd really want to to be part of community. His daughter told me a story that uh, she was so proud of her dad because uh, after the murder somebody came up and to, to her and just thanked him, you know, expressed their sorrow but thanked uh, her father for really helping them through a bad patch and when other officers might not have. So you, you got two officers that really were just there to serve the community. Uh, you talked in the book about uh, that they, they had a longer-term relationship, that they knew each other before both of them became police officers. Yes. They um, actually, uh, Davis uh, worked with Posey and early on as a youngster and, and the great bond that, that indeed they had through the, um, the fire department. And the families lived fairly close to each other. And, again, it's a small community, and these were two policemen that, that really enjoyed being part of that and helping the community to thrive. So when they were, at, when the shooting took place, was it early in their shift or in the middle of the shift? It, it was early in the shift. Um, they had the midnight shift and they, they went out on the streets about midnight and like I said, it was not a nice night out. Uh, there was a traffic accident, a hit and run wasn't you know, overly serious, but they went, they investigated, they had some of the evidence they had in their car, and they decided to, you know, they'll go back to the, the police office and, and um, put the evidence in the, the office and then go back out and shift. So they had, a, they had only been on their shift a couple hours when the shooting took place. Would they normally have been separate out individually, or no? They they usually they they did partners. I said that you know, Westchester or Kenneth Square was not a you know a haven of criminals. Um, when I talked to some people who lived there at the time, you know, you had some people say, "Well, it was just like Mayberry. There wasn't any problems." I, I think I was a little uh, kind of rose-colored glasses remembrance of Kenneth Square, and others said that it had its rough. Patches. It had bars. Sometimes you had bar fights. Um, uh, there was a, you know, the Kenneth Square mushroom community. Um, so yeah, it had its rough edges. Uh, a friend of mine who, who lived there at the time said she would never have gone alone into any of the bars by herself at that point. So the police usually had uh, teams out uh, and the police officers worked. And if I remember right, there was about 12 police officers total that, that covered Kenneth Square at that time. 
So take us to the crime scene. The first right. police officer arrives on scene. What does he see? He sees, he comes into the back parking lot of the Kenneth Square Police Station. There, there's a spotlight out there. He sees in what he described like a lump uh, uh, covered in black raincoats. And, and this was the two police officers on top of each other. Of course, they, they checked for pulses, called 911, and really, there was some talk that maybe Officer Davis had s survived a little bit, but uh, um, they, they think he was pretty much killed instantly, and, and Posley certainly was. You know, when you're there, it's you look around, it's very dark um, outside of the one spotlight. It's in, in a corner of town. Um, there was, you know, kind of the responses really quick. So you, you had the ambulance there and you had uh, other police officers and emergency services coming very quickly to, uh, to the area. Since it was 2 o'clock in the morning, you didn't have much foot traffic or pedestrians out, even though there was one woman who later admitted that she was walking towards the police station a little bit before 2 o'clock and heard maybe the shots came running around or around the corner, saw what was happening, and she went back to the place where she was visiting and did not call the police right away. She uh, said, you know, she didn't really know what to do, and within 15 minutes she heard the ambulance and the sirens and everything, and later on she uh, dis disclosed that she was the person. There's also a theory that when she came around that corner, that kind of spooked Bruce Johnson Sr., who was supposedly the next block over with the getaway car, and he took off because he didn't want to be caught at the scene, and that left brother David Johnson and Ansel Ham alone to fend for themselves and to get away. Uh, how long after the bodies were found were the families notified? Um, Miss, Mrs. Um, Posey was working at the uh, at a, a plant outside of, of uh, uh, Downingtown at that point, which is not that far away from Kenneth Square, and there was a police officer dispatched to the the, uh, the workplace to notify her. Um, we have reports of what happened. She really didn't remember. Of course, she was in a great distress. Her husband was shot and killed, and was taken to the, the hospital where she met one of her, her oldest daughter. Um, so she learned fairly quickly, I think within hours. Um, the police radio dispatchers, uh, one of the Davis family members were, was a, um, a member and worked there at the dispatcher. They were alerted immediately because they were working getting police officers there. The family really learned about it very, very quickly. One of the brothers was working as a bartender at a restaurant just outside of Kenneth Square near Longway Gardens. And by the time he got home to West Grove, and it was you know, not too long after the murders, and when he drove up to the house, the house was lit up. His parents were there, and they had already been informed that uh, William Davis was shot and killed. So. The family was really uh, notified. I had a chance to interview some of the po or all the uh, children of, of uh, the Posey, 
and uh, Brian Posey was the youngest. He was five years old at the time. And what he remembers about that, being woken with uh, great anguish and cries in the house, and he comes out of his bedroom and comes down the steps and want to know what's going on. And uh, he was just told, your father will never come home again, a very poignant place. Um, the oldest daughter was just married, uh, and she was a nurse, and she was alerted, and she rushed to the hospital to be with her, her mother, and uh, the other sister and brother were, were home, and they were in high school, and, and it's just the great, how it affected their lives, and what was the father being, loving father being taken away from them. You know, part of this book really goes to the police officers and, and the family and their loss and the sacrifices made by the police. This is, you know, a bigger story than just not, it's just not another crime murder murder book. And uh, when I give talks on the book, I let people know, you know, this is not a TV show. This is something that happened to real people. They lost fathers. They disrupted lives. And uh, you, you got to really know the consequences of these crimes. It's just not a TV show or a video game by any means. How fast did word spread throughout the community? Pretty fast. Um, of course, right at the scene, there were some people in apartments and houses, and they saw the commotion. It was on the radio the, the next morning. So very early in the morning, people waking up were, were told of the murders. Um, I had a good friend of mine who used to be a reporter for me when, when I was managing editor at the newspaper, and she lived in Kennett Square at the time. And she remembers um, hearing about it on the radio and one of her neighbors giving her a call. And uh, she was outside in the yard with her young daughter and she just scooped up the daughter and got it and went back into the house because she was afraid that, you know, where were these murderers, what was going on. She wanted to keep her you know, daughter safe and there was a lot of that. In, in the community, you know, where who was this person? Many person believed that Kenneth Square was such a nice community that wouldn't have been one of those, one of the, the members and must have been an outsider. Um, and there were some reports that uh, some outsiders were involved that were all discounted pretty, pretty quickly. There was a, another police murder that took place in, um, in New Jersey where uh, somebody was murdered and uh, there was vowed revenge on police officers for the murder of this criminal. And at first, uh, since it was so close to the, the deaths of Davis and Posey, they thought this might be the revenge killing that was threatened, but it, it wasn't. Uh, but you, you had the whole town just really on, on edge for, for days and days. Yeah, you say in the book that uh, rumors and conspiracy theories were spreading. What, what were people saying? People were saying, well, you know, uh, we heard that uh, you know, this was time of the Black Panthers. Maybe they were doing it. It was the time of the, um, like I said, that uh, somebody had threatened revenge on police officers because of the death of a, of a criminal. They thought that was it. Uh, it. There was a lot going around. The police had a lot better look and thoughts of who committed the crime than, than the rumors going around. Um, they had a list of subje subjects. Uh, Ansel Ham was one of the ones at the top, but as I was told, they didn't discount the other theories, and they had a 
uh, take them, go where the evidence uh, took them, and, and that's what they were doing. So they were pretty focused, and I, I said that Charlie Zagorski was the uh, state policeman who pretty much headed up the investigation, and he thought pretty quickly that Ansel Ham was involved because there was a prior incident with Ansel Ham and William Davis and Frank Skorsky, and um, that put the Ansel right up on the top of the list. So uh, you talk about how Davis had had prior interactions with Ham, right. not always pleasant interactions. Can right. you kind of detail some of those? Sure. Um, Ansel Ham um, was a gang member, went to Unionville High School, loved his guns, loved to shoot, uh, became involved in the Johnsons. Like I said, he was their safe cracker. He spent a little bit time in jail. He loved to collect guns. Uh, he probably didn't want to be his, his neighbor out there because he loved to kind of shoot the guns off. And so you had him you know, just kind of thought he was full of himself and he could do what he want because, you know, he's a bad guy. Um, the Davis was didn't want anybody to do anything to harm and break laws in, in Kenneth Square. And it was a small thing that Ham didn't have a driver's license. It was taken away from him. So Ansel, um, every time he drove through town, Davis and his partner, Frank Sigorsky, would stop and get tickets and ask for its license. And, and Ham usually turned it over, but one day, uh, just a couple of weeks before the murders, he didn't. And there was an altercation, and uh, what Davis uh, testified to and his partner Frank Sigorski and other civilians said that Anselham rammed the door uh, of the car into uh, Davis and knocked him down, and there was a struggle, and he had to be subdued, and it took Davis, in, or it took, Davis took uh, Anselham into the police station and charged him with assault on a police officer. Which meant that uh, if convicted, and there were plenty of witnesses to it, that Ansel Ham would probably spend some more time in prison. Ansel said that I didn't do it. You know, they roughed me up and they dragged me out, and I didn't start it. And he had a girlfriend in the car who backed up Ansel, so yeah. You had a little bit of he said, she said, um, you know, Ansel saying one thing, the police the other, but there were other civilian witnesses that Ansel started it. So you had Ansel Ham not wanting to go to prison, even though it would have been a, a short stretch with the, with the assault. And um, it turns out he was looking for ways that would keep him out of jail. Uh, was there any evidence found at the crime scene itself? They, uh, the crime scene, they, they knew the area where the shots were fired. They found some cigarettes. They, they found a couple shell casings. And one of the, one of the two bullets that were fired, the fatal shots, one of them was in good enough con condition that they could test it if they found uh, you know, the rifle and could do the ballistics on it. There wasn't much evidence right there, and that was about it. And where the shots were fired was across the street from the police station, across the road, uh, from a, near a tree, near a business office where an insurance company was located. So there was some physical evidence there right at the scene, but not a lot. The key physical evidence was found several days later.
and, and that was found as a result of, of this large search. Can you describe the search? You, you talk sure. about how the, the lead investigator had a hunch and he just kind of followed through on it. As I said, Charlie Skorsky thought for sure Ham and Ham had something to do it. And um, the, he said, look, Ham's house is on a direct line. It's one mile away. Um, this was the first Sunday after the shooting, and there was a big, we can talk about it, the big funeral that, that took place the day before the fill of the streets of Kennett Square. But next morning, again, it was not a great day. It was rain. It was a little bit of snow. It was you know, your typical end of November day. And of course, he talked with William Lamb, the, the DA, and said, we're going to do a search. Of course, he got together a lot of police officers some firemen and some Boy Scouts that they thought they could trust. And they put them all in this big line right out in front of the police station and they started a search all the way across that mile to get to Ham's house. Uh, they had across roads, they had across cemeteries, and it was very organized. The orders were if anybody saw any piece, something that looked like it could be evidence and. You know, if it was or not, just stop, put your hand up. A police officer would come over, examine, would, you know, keep that piece if, if they thought it was evidence, and, and they would continue along that search. Um, they had to go across a, a, the Route 1 bypass, which was there. They, they went over that, and they continued that investigation. And then a, uh, one of the firefighters saw a rifle with a bent barrel and he put up his hand and the police came over and of course they just stopped everything at that point. Um, Charlie Zagorski and some of the others went out to examine the rifle. They actually dismissed all the firefighters and, and, the, and the Boy Scouts. We'll be back in a moment with the PA Books podcast. Enjoying this podcast? Please support PCN with a donation at PCNTV.com. This link and others can be found in our show notes. We appreciate your support. So once they found this rifle, what, what happened next? Of course, a great commotion within the, the police department. They took it back. They showed the district attorney, uh, Bill Lamb, other state policemen were there looking at it. And one of the officers said, I've seen that rifle before. It was in Ansel Ham's home. And it was discovered fairly close to the Ham's home, not on the property, but really close. And the police officer was uh, questioned about it. And it turned out a few years before, while Ham was in prison, that the state police uh, thought Ham was involved in some burglaries, involved some weapons. And with a search warrant, they took a number of weapons out of Ham's house, including this Belgium rifle. They, they had the serial number on it, and they checked, and indeed, that was the rifle that was taken out of Ham's house and returned to Ham's mother while Ham was in prison. So uh, it's believed that Ham didn't even know the gun was in the state police possession, uh, the murder weapon. The uh, weapon itself, the end of the barrel, was greatly bent. And uh, the police believe in that the, the criminal believed that if they bent the barrel that they wouldn't be able to get any ballistic matches on the, uh, on the bullet, um, which was totally wrong. The, from what I learned and what was said during the trial was that the, 
the ballistics really what you needed was right at the end of the barrel and the end of the barrel was intact um, to find a to make sure they could get the rifle test fired they had the barrel checked to see if it would explode because of the mending if fired again and it turned out that uh, the integrity was intact so they took it to their firearms expert and usually you take the rifle and fire it down into a barrel of water and recover the spent bullet uh, to uh, match the, the, the murder bullet but uh, in this case they put the barrel straight up in the air and uh, because the barrel being bent to go down was kind of interesting to everybody that, that saw it and they recovered the spent shell they matched it to the one that was taken from uh, Officer Davis's body and it was indeed matched so now they had uh, the rifle that was used um, the couple other pieces of the rifle was uh, torn apart but they found them close to where the rifle itself the body was found and uh, they had a pretty good idea that was the murder weapon. Now, the problem was, you know, they, they still had it a couple feet away from Ham, so they had to continue the investigation. So at what point, now, he would, of course, be arrested at some point, but take us from finding the rifle to the point at which they have a search warrant to go to his house. They um, actually interviewed Ham several times before that rifle was uh, found again there was a great belief ham was a good suspect and possible the murder and he gave a couple of different stories saying that he was you know home he was with his brother they were playing cards uh, his brother lived in a trailer real close to the ham house and you know it wasn't him um, this alibi changed a little bit with different people giving him you know, different alibis at times. Um, and after the gun was found and the ballistics and everything was checked, it was the next day that uh, they decided to rest him. This was a big case. I mean, there, there were national uh, news media there. All the Philadelphia papers were there. It was pretty close. It's only 30, 40 miles from Philadelphia. So there was a lot of Philadelphia. There was great press. And um, you had some people from the state police uh, that really wanted to be involved in it. And the uh, state police uh, commissioner decided he would lead the charge to arrest him. And uh, I remember one of the Chester County detectives saying, you know, he's just grandstanding for, for, for the media and the cameras and he's going to get himself killed. And, but uh, that was not the case. Ham came out pretty meekly the, the next day and was arrested and taken into custody. Uh, so at that point, were, were they convinced that it was him? Or did, was there any direct evidence that, that would uh, connect him to the crime? They, what they had, they, they had the rifle that was in his possession. They had it discarded within feet of Ham's house. They had the prior altercation, so he had a motive um, so they, I, I don't think anybody really seriously at that point thought they, that they had arrested the wrong person. Um, Ham had his, you know, relationship with the Johnstons, so he was a known criminal. So it all, it all kind of added up. Did they have somebody that, seen, that saw him fire the shots? No. You know, maybe David Johnson did, but 
David wasn't going to admit to it. And matter of fact, it turned up David and Bruce Johnson Sr. both ended up character witnesses for Anselham during the trial. So it was a little bit of speculation there, but the, there, there was that circumstantial evidence was pretty much mounted against him. So you say in the book that when he was incarcerated after being arrested, that uh, Davis's father was a prison guard in the same facility, yeah. correct? Yeah, they they made sure that uh, the father and Anselham were never got anywhere close to each other. They were very sensitive to that, and like I said, the Davis family, well known, others in law enforcement, and um, I, the outpouring of grief was just something. The um, Saturday after the murders were the funerals in um, Kennett Square. And it was in a small funeral home right on the main drag there in Kennett Square. And they had so many police officers, not only from Chester County, but around the state and around the country that wanted to attend. They knew that they, you know, they all couldn't drive up to it, so they actually got uh, school buses, a dozen of them, and, and met out by the school and bused the, the police officers. I talked to one shop owner and uh, a barber actually who was there early and he said when he got there that morning the streets started to be lined and there were two and three and four people deep at places wanting to pay their respects. Um, the, the police actually also uh, refurbished as much as they could the car that uh, the officers were in when they were shot and actually it's uh, the cover of, of my book has that uh, police off that car on the cover. Uh, there was a one of the departments from California flew in one of their police cars to be part of um, the funeral procession. Uh, it was an all-day you know kind of event. Um, one police officer was buried more out towards Canada, or Longwood, and the other one more out towards West Grove. But it, it was an all-day affair, and people just turned out to pay their last respects. You mentioned that uh, Philadelphia Mayor Frank Rizzo attended. Uh, President Richard Nixon wrote a letter to the families. Yes. Yep, this this was a, a big deal. And when I was working with Schiffer Publishers, we were talking about the title of the book. And actually, I wanted it to be uh, called Loss of Small Town Innocence. Because at that point in time, in the early 70s, you know, the rule of all the law and order was still there. People had you know, really respected each other. Uh, that's all kind of changed today, but at the time, that's where it was. Uh, sure, there were some police officers that were killed in the line of duty, but usually it was the big cities and, and not in small town like Kenneth Square. And for this to happen, you know, a sniper slaying of two police officers getting out of their car at their police station in a town like Kenneth Square, this this really was the beginning of the loss of small town innocence. If it could happen in, in Kenneth Square, it could happen any place. Um, and, and I think that was one of the reasons where you, you got a lot of the publicity um, and, and national news media covered it and brought in the Frank Rizzo's uh, you know, of the world to play, pay their respect. Now, Ham would initially be appointed two defense attorneys. Who were they? Um, the two defense attorneys, they went roundabout. Uh, one was ended up being Fred Cadamus, the country lawyer. who he was a character I, I covered him as a newspaper reporter. Very good um, uh, defense attorney. 
But as Bill Lamb said, you could never tell what uh, Fred was going to do, how much he would push the lines or come up with. And um, I think the, the, the judges knew that, and they appointed um, Ronald Nagel, young attorney, former FBI agent, a little bit more grounded and to be his co-counsel. Uh, Fred died a few years ago. I talked with Ron. Uh, and Ron later became a common pleas court judge himself, very, very good guy and a very good attorney and judge. And true to his professional conduct, he, you know, he couldn't talk to me about anything that was involved in the case because they're not just not allowed to. But they ended up with some really good, uh, Ansoyam had some really good legal counsel. He was given a somebody, a private investigator, to do some research for the defense. So he was aptly represented during the trial. You mentioned also that uh, initially they thought that the, the guilty parties were the Ridge Runners. Who were the Ridge Runners? Yeah, Bill Lamb liked to call them Ridge Runners, um, the Johnston gang. Uh, the Johnston family uh, really came from the south, from um, you know, Tennessee area, Mountain City, Tennessee area, and there was a lot of people came up to Chester County to work in the mushroom farms and some of the others, and uh, the Ridge Runners were known as the people who ran illegal liquor through the, the ridges of, of down south, and Bill Lamb liked to say, you know, the, this family from Chester County are kind of offset, Mrs. Johnston. Uh, the matriarch of the family came up from Tennessee and married a Quaker, Passmore Johnson, from um, this area, and uh, older than she was, and he died early when the three, uh, large family, but three brothers that were involved in the crime, Bruce Sr., David Johnson, and Norman Johnston, um, you know, they, they would kind of pass that down, say, and Ansel was part of their gang, so he was one of the ridge runners from Chester County. So uh, at this point, the, the trial begins. Uh, how does the, the, the way that the community responded to the murders affect selecting a jury? Um, the jury, because because the trial was there, there was a lot of publicity. They moved the trial to Dauphin County, to, to Harrisburg, and that's where the jury uh, was really like, um, selected, and that's where the case was tried. The, of course, the community was really upset about it. There was a great following. Um, I had a chance to look through the uh, Kennett News and Advertiser, the weekly newspaper that served uh, Kennett Square. And even though it was a weekly newspaper, it was amazing. They did a whole uh, the trial almost day by day and, and witness by witness, which helped me in my research um, and reported it. And, you know, it was greatly looked upon, and, and you can imagine the Davis family and the Posey family were you know, hanging on every uh, you know, witness and what was said and the jury verdict, and um, so there was a great interest in, in the community on what was happening in Harrisburg at the time. Who was the prosecutor? Bill Lamb was the prosecutor, the, uh, the district attorney. Um, he had Charlie Zagorski by his side, of course, and a lot of the Tommy Cloud state policemen and a lot of others. And But he was the main uh, prosecutor, and he 
He's very meticulous. He also prosecuted the Johnston gang uh, for the multiple murders and gained convictions there. And uh, he made sure, and along with the police beforehand, that they investigated and, and interviewed witnesses and got every piece of evidence and had it properly authenticated. I talked to the state policeman who was in charge of, of the evidence. and. You know, he was told early on, don't mess this up, and, and he didn't. He did, did a great job with it. So, you know, he called uh, the police officers and, and the members of the community and people who could testify to the bad blood between Ham and Davis and the forensics and, and uh, what happened during this search and, and really had a tight case against um, Ansel Ham. What was the defense strategy? Ah, the defense strategy. Actually, they threw a couple curveballs at the uh, at the prosecutors. Uh, basically, Ham said, "Wasn't me. I was home. I was playing cards with my brother and some of his friends, and you know, try to place him that he was there at the, at the time the shots were fired." Um, that's what he claimed. Some people in the card game said, yeah, he came in a little bit later and he had enough time to, to commit the murders and come back. Um, he had friends that uh, testified for him, the Johnsons, as I said. And then there was a, one woman who um, gave an alibi mostly to Ansel Ham, and, but it, it was a little shaky. But she was convinced that Ansel was not guilty, and she talked to her sister, who lived out of state and who was blind and a little timid, and went to her sister and said, look, they're railroading this nice young gentleman, Ansel Ham. You need to give him an alibi. So during the defense portion of the trial, unbeknownst to the prosecution, they called in this woman who got up and said, I was there. I was with Ansel Ham, he couldn't have done it. And they recessed for the day. Uh, Bill Lamb said he looked over Charlie's course and he said, who is she, where did this come from? And that uh, evening back at the hotel, uh, Bill Lamb said, what are we gonna do? And Charlie said, I'm gonna go down and talk to her tonight and took a, a FBI agent and went down to her home, drove down to her home, knocked on the door. Husband didn't even know she, she had testified that they kept it uh, very quiet. The defense came down, picked her up, flew her up to Harrisburg, flew her back home. And uh, eventually she wouldn't come out of her bedroom to talk to the police investigators. And it took a little uh, convincing by her husband and said, you gotta come out and talk with them. And she came to the top floor and she, she admitted that she had lied and made up the story because of the pressure of her sister. So they put her in a car, took her back to um, Harrisburg the next day put her immediately on back on the stand and where she recanted her testimony um, and Bill Lamb made sure the jury knew that uh, you know, she admitted lying. Uh, Bill Lamb got back to his seat turned to Charlie Zagorski and said how did I do Charlie and Charlie said I don't know how you did but she was great um, really ruined the defense. The defense had a second um, part that uh, they had blamed a guy named Bo Darrell for committing the murder. Bo was also a criminal. He had had his run-ins with Davis also. 
Uh, there's some talk that uh, Davis had, had made advances to Bo Darrell's wife. Wife denied it, said that you know, she was, worked in a bar and Davis lost a bar a drink, but the, that, that was it. There was nothing between them, but there was enough to, to say Darrell had a reason for, for murdering um, Davis. And uh, Davis or Bodero became a, a convenient scapegoat because he died between the time of the murders of the policemen and the trial. So he wasn't there to defend himself. The, the theory of the Bodero did it was broached to the defense attorneys pretty close to the trial. And it came after the Johnson brothers made numerous visits to Anselham in prison. So uh, the prosecution believes that indeed that that defense was hatched in prison and given to the, the defense attorneys to present. Um, this, it was pretty much unbelievable. They pointed out that you know, Bo Darrell lived in Dilworthtown, which is um, northeast of, of Kenneth Square. Why would you shoot the police officers, run to you know, Ham's house with the state police closing in, the sirens drop the gun there, and then go back to your house, you're going to get caught. You know, there, there was just no reason for doing that, and the defense couldn't explain that portion away. Did Ham himself testify? He did. He didn't do it. And, um, you know, he, he was playing cards. He, you know, he, he, he just said, wasn't me. Um, it's funny, when I was researching the book, um, Ansel Ham is still alive. He's in prison, serving his two consecutive life in prison term. And I wanted to, of course, interview him. Being a you know, newspaper reporter, you know, I like to get both sides of the story. It doesn't matter if you, if you believe one or the other, but you at least should give the people a chance. And as I was doing this, this was COVID era. And um, I wanted to talk with him. I had a lot of questions, uh, but you, Actually, visiting prisons, it was restricted, and it was probably not a good idea with COVID going around. So I thought, i got to get to him some way, and I wrote him a letter, explained who I was, what I was doing, and I had a set of questions. I think there was 10 or 12 questions at the beginning. And, of course, one of them was, did you do it? And, uh, you know, he never answered it directly. He said he was wrongfully convicted because the grand jury foreman on his case didn't properly sign the indictment. Never said he didn't do it. He just said it that way, um, which I always thought was kind of interesting. Uh, how long did it take the jury to deliver its verdict? They weren't out very long. I forget exactly, but it was hours. It wasn't days and days. And the verdict was immediately, you know, alerted people back in Kenneth Square and the Davis family and knew about the uh, conviction in the Posey, Posey family were there also. And yeah, it's it, 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 kind of interesting, the reaction. It wasn't overjoyed. They were glad that Ham was convicted, but it was still a kind of finality that uh, the Posey's father, that was the end of the case. You talk in the book about how uh, Ham spent years uh, filing uh, appeals and trying to get out of jail. What was he doing? Well, you know, he, he fancied himself later on as, you know, a jailhouse attorney. Uh, and um, he 
I was always trying post-conviction hearing acts that there was a deficiency in the evidence that the grand jury foreman did not sign the proper papers and he should be let out and it was just an appeal after appeal both in state court and in federal court. Now in federal court if you don't if you keep bringing the same item up again and again in legal point that's rejected they will finally say, we're not going to hear anymore unless there's something new. And they would not allow him to file these papers as an indigent uh, you know, attorney representing himself. Pennsylvania does not have that law. And he just appealed and appealed. And I talked and interviewed a member of the Chester County DA's office who handled a lot of them. And you know, Ham would mess around with some words. Sometimes he had another attorney. Sometimes he did it himself. Uh, but he just kept us up year after year. And the local judges knew what was going on. And, and the DA's was a, you know, see your previous ruling. You know, nothing has changed. Uh, he got a little creative at times. He decided, you know, besides challenging the verdict, he, uh, he said my attorneys were incompetent. Uh, the prosecutors were corrupt. Um, illegally detained, which led him to uh, put in suits against some governors of Pennsylvania. And, and he went as far as a few presidents saying he was illegally detained and, and named them. Um, I think uh, the last appeal that I know that was divided, I think it was in 2021. I mean, this goes on and on and on. I don't know if he has. Um, any more appeals pending, but that was the last one I, I heard that it was denied. Um, after I wrote him and he wrote back his answers uh, twice, he, he initiated more letters to me and basically just reiterated, I'm not guilty because of what the grand jury foreman uh, didn't do. Um, so he's still sitting there. I have not heard if he read the book. Um, on my previous book, Jailing the Johnson Gang, where I really dealt with the uh, six murders that Bruce Johnson Sr. was convicted, um, I know the Johnson brothers did not like the book <laughs> with something that they wrote me. Uh, by the way, Johnson's, uh, Bruce Johnson was convicted of six counts of murder. I really think he did ten. Some people think he did more. Uh, this just was not a nice group of people that were, were dealing with the, the whole crime syndicate. After the uh, Johnson brothers went to prison, um, members of their gang were still out and around. And um, the, the, the small town cops in the crosshairs, the Ansel Handbook was actually the third one I wrote on them. And I didn't really set out to do a trilogy on the Johnsons, but it certainly wrapped up uh, the Johnson gang in, in Chester County. My first book was on the murders. And one of their, um, members, a guy named uh, Benny LaCourt, interesting guy. He was a uh, teacher, he was a barber, he was a chiropractor, and he was a thief. Interesting combination. But uh, after the brothers went to prison, he read in the New York Times that uh, one of Andrew Wyeth's famous painter from Chad's Ford paintings went for almost a million dollars at an auction. Today they would go for a lot more. And he turned to his cohort, uh, Franny Matherly, who was a member of the the Matherly Mathering gang that kind of associated with the Johnsons. There was a lot of crime taking place in Chester counties in the 70s and 80s. And he said, you know, Andy lives 
pretty close to us. Why don't we just go steal a painting and it'll be your retirement fund? Um, like an interesting idea. So uh, they recruited a burglar out of Tennessee known as a master thief. Came up, they broke into the Wyeth estate, the gra uh, granary, the outbuilding that Betsy Wyeth used as a uh, business office. And they took out 15 paintings at night seven of them by Andy Wyeth, six by Jamie, and two others from uh, Betsy's personal collection worth millions and millions of dollars. And um, I did a book, Stealing Wyeth, that kind of details that a lot of the same investigators from Charlie Zagorski involved in all three and Tommy Cloud in all three, and by that point, David Richter, the FBI agent, uh, was involved, and he was instrumental in, in the murder convictions. and tracking down the the paintings where they went. Um, I did actually did a book signing with Jamie Wyeth up in Maine and Jamie liked the uh, gang that couldn't shoot straight aspects of the books because they had these millions of dollars worth of paintings and they couldn't sell them because they were so well known and within 48 hours of the theft uh, every museum and auction house and dealer knew that uh, these paintings were stolen. Yeah, one of the Johnsons, uh, Norman, actually escaped from jail at one point. He did in 1999, and Norman had been in, in prison at that point for more than 20 years. Um, Norman uh, was kind of a you know, likable guy at times. He was the youngest brother, and he talked some of the prison people into kind of aiding him escape. It was all planned. He, he did escape, and... Um, I, I was really surprised at first, why did he come back to Chester County? Uh, was to get revenge? That didn't really sound like Norman Johnston. And he really put the whole county on edge for weeks and weeks and weeks. Uh, Bill Lamb didn't have a choice. They, he was put under state police protection. Some of the uh, criminals that turned state evidence and testified against the Johnstons just left town until he was recaptured and he was spotted all over Chester County. I think he was trying to get close to some of the relatives which they had left some money. And he was trying to get that money, I'm sure, to get away. But uh, they, all, everybody involved with the Johnson family was under close surveillance by police. He couldn't get close to anybody. And I was later told that the relative that was given money had spent the money anyway. So he was kind of glad when Norman was captured. But Norman had a rough time out there. Um, you know, he lived out in the open. Uh, he was seen, spotted, chased Nottingham Park down in Maryland, uh, all over the place. He could only steal old cars because he didn't know how new ones worked. You know, you know pay at the pump was, was an issue for him. Um, the landscape had changed, so he was running kind of ragged. Uh, of course, the media reported it. You know, every day, Philadelphia police, radio stations, television stations, local media. And it was, uh, besides being a dangerous murderer out there, some, uh, some people thought it was kind of funny. And then they had T-shirts printed up, Run, Norman, Run, which uh, police didn't really take too kindly to. And one day, a state policeman saw him in an old stolen car and chased him. Norman thought he was clever, and he went to this farm that uh, he knew he could escape the back way, but the farm had turned into a housing development with a fence in the back, and that's when he was trapped and captured. 
Well, we've been talking about the book Small Town Cops in the Crosshairs. Bruce Mowdy, thank you for speaking with me. Thank you, Phil. It's always a pleasure. Listeners like you make PCN programming possible. Full episodes of PA Books, as well as other PCN programs, are available to stream with the PCN Select app. To learn more about PCN's mission and to support PCN with a donation, visit PCNTV.com. This link and others can be found in our show notes. We appreciate your support.